I think in that race is where I kind of started going like we as humans are a lot more and myself personally a, a lot more stronger and tougher than I think. And then it's been on a journey since. Welcome, everyone, to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner, and in today's episode of The Trail Life, we are going to party in the pain cave and learn how my next guest mentally and physically took down the Moab 240 endurance run. We hope you enjoy listening to Hector Rodriguez. This episode of The Trail Life Podcast is brought to you by Fleet Feet San Diego. At Fleet Feet, you will find a welcoming environment where runners, walkers, and fitness enthusiasts of all abilities receive unparalleled service and support. They empower you to pursue your goals and enjoy a lifetime of running They are committed to helping you find the perfect fitting running shoe, sport bra, sock, insoles, or gear to do what you love. To find out a location near you, go to FleetFeetSanDiego.com. Help me turn the turning. Help me get it right. I don't want to hurt nobody. Well, I don't want to fight. Welcome to the trail life, man. Uh, appreciate you being on with me today, and and I'm excited to hear hear all the stories you you can you can share with us around the uh, Moab 240 and some of your other experiences. Man, I'm even more excited to finally get the opportunity to talk with you. <laughs> so you just finished, as I said, you just finished the Moab 240, which is a endurance run, a 240 mile endurance run through Moab, Utah, and parts of the national park. How would you rate that experience and even that event? Um, in the list of everything that you've you've done? I would say out of a one to 10, out of almost everything I've done just in life, I'd, I'd give that a hundred. It was that <laughs> amazing. Wow. 1, so, all right. So, so let's let that serve as kind of our foundation or our baseline to our conversation. Cause I think there's some really cool things that, that even just over the last six months that you've done um, that kind of really been inspirational to a lot of runners, both here in San Diego and, and everywhere else. So um, I, for those who don't know you, um, I'd like to get a little bit of background. Like how did you get started into ultra running and even shit, even running in, in general? Um, I would say I had two big influences to kind of get me more into the ultra running space. Beforehand, I was doing more, uh, well, beforehand, I was kind of doing nothing, but kind of like, you know, maybe three, four, five years ago, I was doing more of triathlons. But what was kind of pivotal for me was two things. Once was my brother had start, started getting into trail running and he signed up for the Kodiak 50 miler in Big Bear, California, which is not too far from here in San Diego. So I had never really probably been on a trail too much, to be honest. Um, but I went out there to kind of just show love, show some support as I knew that would be super tough doing 50 miles in Big Bear. And uh, I was waiting for him at the aid station. It was probably like mile 32, 35, 36, 37, somewhere around there. And I seen him just beat up bad from the mountains. He was he was hurting bad. Right. So I literally, uh, probably like to the penalty to the course, uh, jumped on the course with him and was like, man, let's go. Like, I'm, I'll, I'll try to give you some energy. I'll, I'll pace you. And we went a mile and he was just breathing heavy. It was, it was high elevation and big bear. And he was like, no, I'm done. I, I can't go. And he fought so hard. Uh, and I could tell he was so disappointed, but I was proud of him because 
I had never seen him go that far. So in that little short segment, uh, two things happened. One, I saw nature. I saw the trees. I saw the trails. And it did something to my brain that I'm so blessed that it did. It was just beautiful. It was amazing. And then I seen him go for a challenge that he couldn't finish. So all of like marathons, half marathons, Ironmans, uh, 70.3s, all of those kind of things. Whether I trained the best or I didn't, I was always able to make the cutoff to finish. So seeing him actually miss the cutoff, I was like, whoa, like this is a challenge. This is tough. So that kind of stayed in the back of my mind. And that was probably August, 2018. Then uh, the second big milestone or factor that really hit me hard was there was a lot of things personally in my life and my family's uh, in, in my close family, in my close circle, where I was seeing a lot of people mentally not being the best, not making the best example uh, to me. And I have people, you know, I'm the older brother. So it was important for me who at the time I was, I'll be honest with you, I was 228 pounds. I was traveling a lot for work. So I would sit in hotel bars, have a couple beers, drink burgers. And I got myself to the heaviest I had ever been. I was 228 pounds. I was unhealthy. So I'm seeing people in my circle starting to crack mentally. Okay. And I was going, I can't talk the talk because I'm not walking the walk. And exactly at that time, Goggins was getting a huge name for himself. David Goggins. He went on the Joe Rogan podcast. He wrote the Can't Hurt Me book. And I went through all of that. I probably watched the podcast, listened to the book, I don't know how many times. And all of those tools, for some reason, just clicked in my head. I'm going to become the mentally strongest person and I'm going to lead by example for them. And my first challenge, I heard Goggin, I heard Joe Rogan say, hey, David, how often, you know, like, when do you take days off? And he goes, I don't take days off, brother. And I had always had kind of the approach, you know, maybe I work out Monday through Friday and I take the weekends off. And to me, that was almost a limiting belief that I needed to take those two days off. So just hearing him say that said, can I do the same? Right. So I went ahead and said, I'm going to average 10 miles a day every day for the month, for the year, for 2019. And can I accomplish that i suffered through that can i endure that and i did it uh yeah and it it just that discipline to it and like if i truly truly needed a day off i took it but i took it when i truly needed it but i found that i could at least always walk it i could run it i could hike it and Mm -hmm. i got super active i made the connection that training and mental toughness can be found in running and enduring and in pain and in suffering. So it's, you know, it's all about consistency, right? And I think that's the biggest 100%. thing that, that, you know, Goggins talks about is just getting into that rhythm and keeping that rhythm. And yeah. uh, so I, I want to fast forward. So that was 2018 ish. Yeah. And so I want to fast forward to the last six months because the last six months become a little bit more of a challenge, so to speak, uh, yeah. as far as doing things. And, and I know you've done some really cool challenges over these, over this quarantine period. And a couple of them, you know, you did the, the 24 hour pirate cove, uh, events you've done the Aravipa strong race, which is a hundred mile uh, events, I believe, uh, which you, yep. which you decided to do on a treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to, I want to get into that just for a quick minute. What was the decision to do that event on a treadmill versus going out and, and run on the trails or on the road? Um, 
There was probably two. One is I'm very comfortable on a treadmill. Like I have one in my garage. So I try to squeeze in miles whenever I can. Um, so like if, if my wife's like cooking dinner or something, I would jump in the garage, get some miles. Um, cause I, like I have a pretty lofty goal of the 10 miles. So I'm always looking for opportunities mm-hmm. to squeeze in miles while trying to not sacrifice too much time from the family. Cause there's definitely a sacrifice there. The second part was, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, man, but I'm a huge Kobe Bryant fan and it's not so much for his basketball accolades. It's more for the the parenting and the example I saw in him for his daughters. And I heard a podcast uh, with him and Lewis Howes, I believe, mm-hmm. where he says after basketball, he would still work hard. He was going to the office. I think he was doing like his movies or, or some kind of studio stuff. And he saw that his kids could no longer see him work hard because he was leaving the house. So he goes, I decided to change change the approach. And every day at 4 a.m., he would start to train in the gym at the house and invite his daughter to come. And so through training, through, you know, waking up every early, he taught her relentlessness, discipline, hard work, and all of that stuff. So I became a believer in using training and running as an easy way to teach life lessons and tools to my daughters. So I knew by doing it in the garage and not on the trail, they mm-hmm. could be in there. They could take part of it. They could see me at mile 70, mile 80. They could see me walking. They could see me in pain. They could see me crying, uh, but battling through. And I just saw it as a great tool and life lesson for them to start seeing that and hopefully planting seeds in their head because uh, they're two little girls right now that they just remember that. For anybody who knows you, whether in person or on social media, um, the pain cave is (laughs) one of your signature mentality points that that you work with. And when did the whole entire concept of the pain cave start and where do you, how do you, how do you get into that mentally and, and how, you know, where does that come into as far as preparing for a race or during an event? Definitely the term I got from Courtney DeWalter, uh, because I think to me, she's the queen of the pain cave. She's like (laughs) one of a kind, and I look up to her tremendously for her mental strength. For me, I believe it was back in that 24-hour race. In 2019, I had some DNFs, I had some fails, and kind of going into 2020, that was one of my first races. And I remember my buddy Louie texting me during the race and I was probably around the 50K mark and he was like, how are you doing? And I was like, man, my, my knee is in a lot of pain right now. I don't know how well I'm going to do. I ended up doing, you know, let's say 60 more miles almost after that. And that's when I learned that the mind and, 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 and maybe I was having a little bit of knee pain, you know, but it definitely subsided a couple miles later and I was able to continue moving. And I learned there that the mind looks for comfort. It'll say, oh, your knee's hurting. Oh, you know, your ankle's hurting. Oh, your leg is tightening. You should stop. Let's, let's get on the couch. Let's relax. Let's chill. And it was there that I learned like, nah, brother, like I can keep going. And I hear that voice and I can keep pushing through. And pain, most of the time, is temporary. It subsides. And you just keep moving forward. And you can do so much more than you ever thought possible. And so that was my first taste. And I think that's when I literally started becoming 
obsessed to seeing what I could do, what my limits were, what my boundaries were, mm. and what um, what I could endure. I heard uh, Mike Tyson recently on a Joe Rogan podcast. And in that podcast, he said, being fit is looking good in your clothes, but being equipped is coming outside your soul. And that was very, very touching to me because to me, that means, that means, yeah, being physically fit is cool. Like we could walk around the beach and show our six pack, but being mentally fit, that's, that's where it's at. That's where things can transition to your work, to your parenting, to being a husband, to being a friend. And I wanted to make sure that I, I was obsessed with seeing can I what can I outdoor versus myself yesterday and versus just like the general like public. Can I do something 99% of people can, can't do? Can I mentally go there? Because if I can, then it gives me the confidence that it gives me the confidence in life that no matter what happens to me in the real world, if I lose my job, if something horrible happens, I have the tools in these training and in these challenges that my wife and my daughters will be okay because I can pull levers in my head to out endure 99% of people. And so I'm a big believer as much as I'm a believer in the pain cave and you know me from that, but I don't train for the races. I'm training for freaking life. And like, I can never see myself going backwards. So that's kind of the two that tie in is like the pain cave is training for life for me. Well, and that just shows, you know, what, what can be exceeded, right. By, by any standard, if you just kind of work through it and, and challenge yourself enough, you know, to, to see where your threshold actually is. Um, and move again, forward. It just, just move forward here. Yeah. Like it could be baby step. Like I will talk about Moab, but I literally came back from death. I don't know how many times and like people would get to death and then die. You know what I mean? Like would be like, all right, I've had enough, but you just go, okay, let me just get up. Let me just try one more mile. And then you're just so surprised that you can get going again. And so like, I feel like I have so much confidence in life if I get like the craziest curveball, I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to remember just go one more mile and I'm going to start to feel better and we're going to get out of this mess. And so it's just such a relationship that if I can't share one thing with the world, it's that there's a connection between these challenges and adversity and pain to getting through it in life. I truly, truly believe it. Well, and that's a, that's a great segue into, into the Moab 240. Um, yeah. because I, I want to hear your decision to, to enter this event, but also training leading up to it, because for, for people who don't know what this event's all about, you, you're, it's, you're going until you, until you either call quits or you finish. Right. Yeah. So, and that's your, your temperature changes going up and down the mountains. So you've got a, I don't, you have to wear a pack with you, right. And head, yeah. headlamps. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the, where did it, you know, what's the decision to get into doing this event and then what kind of training both physically and mentally are you doing leading up to, to this event? I, you know, I had seen Goggins. I had seen Courtney DeWalter. I had seen Cameron Haynes, um, who all three, I look up to so much more for that mental fitness that, that I believe is so key in life. And all three of them had done it. So I knew I was attracted to the course. Making that end of year 2018 challenge of that 10 miles a day, unbeknownst to me, 
was my training, was the start of my training for Moab. And I'm in the camp of training to be at your best when your body's at its worst. And that was developed through that 10 mile a day challenge that I still hold to today. Like every month I'm going to have 300 or 310 miles completed. And doing that 24 hour race was, you know, long than doing the 100 mile race. And then I jumped into your monthly miles challenge, which is like a 30 day suffer fest, you know, that I went through. Then I jumped into your elevation challenge, which was like another monthly long enduring challenge where it's like multiple days where every day I was finding mountains or bleachers or whatever I could do to get climbing in. Uh, doing a last person standing to see how long I could suffer. It was like, unbeknownst to me, all of these things were like building blocks. Adding up. Yeah, it was adding up. And it was, it was crazy because I wasn't on, I was on the wait list. And I don't remember when I got on the wait list. Let's say it was June or something. The day after I did that last person standing and I got second place, that Monday I get the invitation from Candace saying, You've been selected. So it was like no time off, but it was beautiful <laughs> to me. And like, I, to me, it was, it was, it's the, the, the key and the success to my life so far is training to be at my best when my body's at my worst, getting the job done no matter what. So like I didn't have, I don't have like this crazy race plan for the race. It was just, I am comfortable getting the work done when I'm not feeling my best. So yeah, I did. uh, I did go to Arizona for a month to get acclimated to heat. I did do uh, 250 Ks in September to kind of get ready for that race. But the key to my success was just the grind I do every day on myself. Um, because there was, it was inevitable that mountain was going to make me suffer like I've never done before. So what's the, so the, your prep work getting into it, what, as I said before, you, you're having to, to carry a pack with you. So yeah. tell us what, what was, what was in, what's in your pack? You know, what, what do you have to carry yeah. in this race? That's, that's a great question. I had two things that I was most concerned about. One was I felt, to be honest, and uh, to be honest, I felt okay with the 240 miles over the 112 hour time limit. The two factors that I had no idea was how I was going to do was one, 29,000 feet of climbing. I have never climbed anything close to that. So I didn't know how I would handle that. Mm-hmm. And then the second was, I never run with the amount of weight that we had to have on our back. Uh, so I tried to train for it as best I could in Arizona by like any time I was like, I was like, it was 115 degrees and I was like the only crazy person in the state probably walking around with this big heavy pack uh, in the, the middle of the day in the heat trying to just get acclimated to it. But to answer your question of what was in it, I'll do my best to try to remember. But but because of the crazy weather changes, we had to always have a puffy jacket, pants, a base layer shirt, gloves, like a hat or beanie, a whistle, 500 calories of food, a GPS tracker, um, a space blanket, which I had never heard of it until this race. And then all of our hydration and in moab it felt like most of the aid stations were probably like 13 to 20 miles apart so you really go through your 
strengths, you know, you go through your fluid pretty quickly. So when you're at the aid station, you're, you're loading up your bladders. I even had extra flasks of bladders. So it was, um, super heavy pack, um, that you had to carry to get yourself through aid station and for safety reasons, which makes total sense because you don't know like how long these legs are going to take. They were pretty brutal. Yeah. Now, so you, you arrive, you arrive on, uh, in Moab for, for event weekend, uh, for the start of it. What's the, um, a, what's the limit as far as the amount of runners goes, like how many, what's their max. And then, uh, what's the, what's the atmosphere like around, around the start of the race? Cause there's, I think there's, if I'm not mistaken, there's a couple different start times, right? There's a seven o'clock start time. And then there's like a, uh, like a seven 30 or an eight o'clock start. Right. Uh, so yeah, so there was 200-ish people okay. for the race. So this is a pretty big event then for, for a 240-mile race. I mean, this is... Yeah, it's 200 crazy, crazy people is what I said, <laughs> for sure. Um, and race day, um, I started at 6. I believe it was 6, 6.15, 6.30, 6.45, 7 o'clock. Okay, got it. And like, you know, people like Goggins, like the elite runners, I think we're going off at 7. So that that's kind of how they broke us up. It's not like a like a rock and roll marathon, you know, where you see tons of people, you know, right. there's eight stations and there's like a party going on every time. It's it's not like that. It's much more it's a lot less people, mm-hmm. but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful atmosphere. It's like super memorable. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing energy. Um, I just feel truly blessed to have been a part of it. Like I could get choked up just thinking about how beautiful that was. Nice, man. Well, so you, so you're going to your, you get started in your race and, and I would assume, uh, with your experiences now with some of the challenges and hundred miles that you've already done, did you feel like your first 50 to, to hundred miles were just as you expected? Did you run that? Were you able to run your event the way you thought it was going to go up to that point? Or, or was there, did you experience any challenges that like earlier than what you thought? No, I actually, I had things just work out perfectly for me. Um, I had a, a fellow San Diegan who uh, I made friends with on Instagram, who also was doing the race, send me over some some data that he got. And it was like this, this other guy who had done the races recap. And one of his number one feedback was like, hey, make sure you make your 100 miles as easy as possible. Take it easy. So I, I think I was getting a little excited um, at the beginning of the race. And then I ran into two guys who were going slower than me. Uh, one of the guys actually recognized me and was like, hey, what's up, Hector? And so I started having a conversation with them and I started going at their pace, which I think was super smart because it kind of regained my composure, kind of calmed me down. And I, I don't remember exactly, but I felt like I did probably like 10 miles with these two guys. Um, and one of the guys kind of had uh, an ankle that he was kind of nursing and he's insane for even still trying so at some point i was like all right i need to kind of make up some time so we went down this like canyon section so i ended up leaving them but like they were kind of key and just kind of regaining my composure then uh a little bit later i actually have goggins run next to me and i had met him at the pre-race and had a chat with him and ended up uh allowing him to park in my camping spot at race check-in and then allowing his fiance to park in my parking spot the day of the race. So uh, I think he recognized me uh, because we did have a conversation. We did take a picture and we were having a small conversation and he like uh, at some point we're talking and I was like, yeah, like I'm uh, my plan is to take this, you know, hundred miles really easy. And he's like, that is the key brother. He goes, this second half of the race is, is tremendous. So 
definitely stick with that approach. So he kind of reaffirmed it for me. And then I got super lucky um, because not until mile 72 could you start running with with your team, with your crew. So I wanted to make sure. So like for me, I broke the race down to smaller sections. And for me, it was get to mile 72, get to my crew. Like that was that was my race at first was get to mile 72. And I thankfully around the mid 30s mile ran into uh, Sean, I don't want to butcher his last name, but his Instagram handles ultra runner SD. And he's to me, a local San Diego legend. I don't know anybody who puts in work on the trails and who is mentally tough as this dude. So I was like, Oh man, this is awesome. And thankfully he recognized me as well. So we got into a chat and we ended up kind of pacing each other and supporting each other from the mid 30 all the way to 72. So I went through the whole night with him. We both kind of kept it calm and easy because he's a vet. Like he got second place in the race before. And so it was, it was, it couldn't have been more perfect scenario for, you know, the first 70. So then I got to the mile eight station and then got my crew and then got back into my game. And so the first hundred was like golden for me. Perfect. So out of the, out of the 29,000 feet of elevation gain, you, you accumulated over the course of the race, it was in most of that was at the, at the back halves, right? So there wasn't, so that makes, it makes the hundred miles a little bit smoother to, to manage, right? Or a little bit easier to manage because there's not as much elevation gain. Yeah. I, I, I can't like, I, I don't know for sure where, what the climbing was at a hundred miles. I would assume it was probably a hundred miles, 10 K. So that left me with 20K over 140 okay. miles. And there, there's this section called LaSalle Mountains, which is like maybe 167 to 202, 201, 203. And in that section, it's like a 9 to 10K climb, if I recall correctly, just in that section, going from like 6K elevation all the way to above 10K. So when you, when it comes to, to crew and aid stations, um, so how, where were your crew points at? Um, and how, how far could they go with you during certain points? Were they only allowed, obviously that you said they could start at 72, but were they with you the rest of the time, uh, the entire way, or they could only go up to a certain point. So what the, the way the crew worked out was I had four people. I had my sister, who's a savage, my brother, who's a beast, my brother, Louis, uh, who is awesome. And then my uncle at the aid station, they could be there. Um, so like I would come in, I would come in, you know, I would try to give them my bag so they could fill my, my drinks. Uh, my sister was kind of like the captain and ensuring like I always had the essential requirements that I mentioned earlier in the bag, uh, making sure that like, if the next section was going to be in the night that like, I'm pulling the jacket out of my bag and I'm wearing it, uh, that like, maybe I, like, I was kind of flip-flopping between like, like super warm gloves or light gloves, super warm beanie, maybe a little lighter beanie, Hmm. um, sunglasses versus clear visors because or clear glasses. So just, she was kind of like making sure I was good on that end. They were making, they would order the food for me. Um, well, like, like I'm sitting and resting, they would clean my feet, which my feet became a huge issue. Um, so they could do all that kind of stuff. Now they could never, they couldn't like actually only one person could come on the course with me. Okay. So one person would jump on the course and then we would do, you know, the fifth, let's say 15 mile segment. And then they would have to drive to the next aid station, we would run through that routine again. And then another person would jump on with me and then we would do the next leg. And so it was always like that. Like, it wasn't like I had a car accessible to me the whole time. 
As you're going, I mean, like you're hitting seventy, you're hitting seventy-two hundred miles, but you're in the evening time, right? So, what's the what's the sleep situation when it comes to being out of the course? I mean, I I know if I if I read correctly, they had sleep stations set up for the runners, but if I'm not mistaken, I also saw pictures on online where people were just camped out sleeping on the side of the trail or side of the road just to get a few extra extra uh, minutes of sleep. Yeah, so I I it, it, I had I had built my race plan to take scheduled naps, and then during uh, that run with Ultra Runner SD, uh, we were talking a lot about the race, and his advice was like just take it when you need it because you you do these plans, and he was like I found that I might be a little too antsy, and I I don't get the rest I need, and I, you know so I, he goes it may not be worth it, so take it when you need it. And I don't know if you know who Mike McKnight is, mm-hmm. but uh, I freaking love the dude. Um, and I saw his Colorado FKT um, tent or his successful Colorado FKT, which was freaking awesome. And I saw him power through sleep deprivation and take trail naps and do all that kind of stuff. So I get to mile 72 and who am I greeted by? Freaking Mike McKnight. So I got freaking jacked up amped up and i was like oh we ain't sleeping tonight i'm going like bike mcknight <laughs> and i'm doing trail naps baby so like my approach was kind of taking that that take the sleep when i needed it right. uh, as far as the course they did have uh sleeping stations which i i'm assuming were tents i never didn't go look at it i have no idea what it was we had a van my crew had a van and uh, what they did for me, which was super awesome, was uh, at some point they went to like um, like a sporting goods store and bought me a mat. And so as I came in, the times I did sleep, uh, we put the heater on the van. They put the mat out. You know, I ate real quick, got my feet clean, got like situated, and then I slept in the van for, you know, and I, I slept anywhere from an hour and a half to I think three hours at the most. And then at the last leg, uh, when I was dead tired, but I was wanting to get done, then I did some trail naps. So you, you, you're powering through the first night. So you took trail naps and what, what's your, what's a trail first night? Nap? I didn't, I didn't, you didn't already, yeah, it was, it was sleep deprivation for the first night, but as, oh, you, yeah. as you get into it, uh, how long are there, our trail naps? What's, what's the, what's the distance? Yeah. Out? So I went with, uh, five to 10 minutes top. Okay. Uh, I ended up meeting this awesome lady, Amy, who was behind me, but somehow she was taking trail naps, but I must've been going so slow that she caught up to us. And then I was just so dead the last night because we had finished the, that, that nine to 10,000 foot climb. And it was my last night. My uncle was there pacing me. So it was kind of like, hey, suffer for an hour. And then you'll get five to 10 minutes of closing your eyes on the side of the trail. Suffer through another hour, get five to 10 minutes to get some energy to suffer the next hour. And so the three of us kind of did that approach until the sun came out. And then when the sun came out, it was like, boom, you're back to life. And then right. you're in pain, but at least the sleep deprivation has gone. Then we just kept going. So you're now into, uh, so mile 72, what, what time of, what time of day are we at when you hit that first aid station? I don't know for sure. Uh, but two, three, four in the morning. Okay. So you power through, um, that night, no, no sleep. So what is your day two? Like, I mean, cause it's gotta be a little bit harder to hit the, <laughs> to, 
to obviously you're not going to hit another hundred miles or 72 miles in, in day two. So what did, what was your mentality moving into day two with on sleep deprivation, getting into that? Um, my goal was to get to 120 miles in the next 24 hours. So um, I knew we had a hard section. Um, there was the, it was called Shea Mountain. That was the soup. That was probably the most technical part of the course. And I was very pissed off <laughs> at that section, to be honest with you, because it, there, was, there was points in the, in the climb where I was like, I felt I climbed 3,000 feet. Like, I, I, I feel like I know what that is. And it, there was a point where I was like, all right, like that had to be the mountain. And it was like, that was only a thousand feet. And I was like, Oh, what the hell? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it was just, you know, battling that. Um, and then what was also kind of a mind battle was there was this other section. Uh, yeah. So, so I guess going back was getting to a hundred a mile 20, uh, and just continuing to push through. Uh, so I could, bank hours uh in case i started to struggle the second half of the race so that that was definitely my approach for uh the second day was just kind of just keep going get to 100 mi- mile 120 yeah and, and then so how are uh you, know, you mentioned it before when you got to that you know at an aid station like what do you what's the damage your feet are taking on right now being that it, you know, 120 miles is one thing, but when you're, you go into my, you know, day two or sorry, day three and day four, like how your feet starting to feel, or even it's like the rest of your you know legs and joints, like how are you feeling at that point? I mean, obviously it was, it was the most pain I've ever felt in my life. Um, my feet, uh, that recap that I mentioned earlier that my buddy Gabe sent over, uh, he talked about how the dust the sand in Moab is just like inevitable to just get into yeah. your, your shoes and your socks. So I was even wearing, I wear this uh, stance sock. It's this raining champ stance sock is what I always use. And it's like a compression sock. I had trail gaiters on and every aid station I'd get to like my foot in between the toes, everything would be like flooded with sand. And very early, much earlier than normal, I was getting like blisters and I was getting foot pain. And hence why I, at every aid station, made sure that we took my shoes off, we took my socks, we cleaned it, we tried to put squirrels, I think squirrels nut butter, like we tried to do everything. And it got to be so painful uh, that I don't remember at what mile, but it was, it, was, it was probably somewhere after 100 that I, that my team went to the medic and had him look at my feet. And then he was like, okay, we, we needed to tape them. So I had never been too familiar with Luco tape, if that's even how you say it, but he ended up taping my feet and that was pretty huge and key to my success was, uh, it went from walking through hell to walking on fire. And I was, I trained to walk through fire, but walking through hell, like I, I was, I was struggling. <laughs> so that was key. And then another piece of advice that was huge was the guy said, make sure you take a half size shoe bigger. So I had never done that, never felt like I needed it, never felt like my foot has ever swelled like that. Mm-hmm. But like, thankfully, like two days before my brother was going to fly out to crew me, I said, hey, because in Moab, there isn't an REI. There isn't like a lot there's of nothing, There's nothing out there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a little town. And so I said, can you pick me up? Can you go to REI and pick me up a size 12? And he was like, yeah, for sure. Thankfully, uh, well, at the aid station, I noticed that he was putting on an ankle sock for me for the next leg. 
and the ankle sock, I know where it normally sits, like on my foot. And when he put it on, it was barely on my foot, like on the foot. So that told me, and I didn't say nothing to them, but I knew my foot was now swollen. So I was like, okay, hold up. Let's, uh, let's get the size 12 shoe and let's rock and roll with that. So I would say with the taping of the feet and then moving to a size 12 shoe when I'm regularly 11 and a half made it, it was still painful, but made it enough to where I could manage continuing to walk. Um, as far as everything else, like my shoulders, my back, everything was on fire because of the weight, which I'm not uh, acclimated. And I could have probably trained better with that. My feet hurt like hell, but going back to training to be my best when my body's at its worst, like I was able to endure enough to finish the race. At some point in time, you know, like you get into, uh, cause you, you, you finished the race in what as it was, it was four days. Four nights, five days. When you get into day three and day four, like break down uh like how like your mentality at this point. <laughs> a couple nights, like what's what what's your thought process? Even at like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, like what's what, what's going through your mind? I had a few things going through my mind. Um one was like this is what I wanted. Like this was what I had been training for kind of you know a long time unbeknownst to me that experience was like what I was looking to do like can I do something 99% of people can't do I'm a big fan of Chad Wright um, and one of his he's a uh, ultra marathoner ex-navy seal and one of his mantras is be hard when it gets hard so things were getting hard and I just kept saying that be hard when it gets hard that was huge for me thinking about my girls and how I said, like I was using this run as like a tool. Um, so I wanted to make sure I was showing relentlessness, hard work, never give up. And if I do give up, it was going to be giving a 2000% effort. Um, so like a lot of that was going through my mind. One that was really surprising, super beautiful, absolutely incredible was our community. Um, my community, my family, my friends. Uh, I have this thing I call the Wolf Pack, which is like this unbelievable group of people, um, the local trail groups, uh, people from just everywhere showed me insane, insane, insane amount of love. Like people started hashtagging Hector 240 and they were running virtual miles with me. They were tagging me. It was so beautiful. It makes me emotional, but I saw all of that. I thought about the people that have started looking up to me, the people that started rooting for me, the people that have been supporting me, the love that I just mentioned everybody was giving me, that I was going to give my heart, I was going to give my soul um, to finishing that race. So anytime like, I went low, like I thought about everybody. I thought about my girls. My bib number in honor of Kobe Bryant um, was 224 in honor of him and his daughter. And it was on my leg. So when I would look down, I would think of him and the run in a lot of ways was like an honor to him because I never connected training and working out as a tool to parenting. And I've seen the impact it's had on my little girl's lives. So there was just so much mentally, like I'm still fully haven't processed it. Um, but all of that was so much fuel 
that I was going to do that Mike Tyson. I was going to come out of my soul, and I did. Like, I had to, especially that nine to 10,000-foot climb, those four nights, um, all of that was just was just pumping me, pumping me. It was like diesel. I was running on diesel, 100%. All right, so you're getting into those last, you know, couple miles. Um and you, what time, what time of the morning? Uh, no, I pulled, I pulled, I don't remember for sure. Uh, I feel like I pulled into line five, six, seven PM, uh, Utah time. Okay. So it was in the evening time. So even then you get that last, those last couple of miles or even into that finish line. And I, I've seen the, I've seen some of your, your posts on social and, and you got your family there and your support crew and they're yeah. around in the corner with you and stuff. I mean, Take me through the, you know, the, the emotions, you know, finishing up this race. Yeah, it, w- it was pretty cool. Um, or like, it was more than, than cool. It was unbelievable. Like, um, my sister is like a huge inspiration to me. She's like the ultimate savage in the family. She is so tough. And so it was really beautiful to do, to be able to rely on her the last, you know, 20 miles or 17 miles of, of the race. To know I was in such good hands with such a tough person, to have her bring me, uh, to have her uh, bring me in was special. Then uh, probably around, you know, mile 239, uh, 239 and a half or something like that, my girls, my mom, my wife, like came onto the course. Uh, they scared me at first because I was like, hey, like, I don't want to get disqualified right now because I'm still only have one pacer. But they're like, no, we talked to Candice, and she's like, you've got this. Like, you're good to go. So I was like, okay, like, cool. Like, then let's do this. So just being four nights, you know, five days in the mountains, suffering like you've never done, being in the most pain, um, wanting to make people proud, wanting to set a good example, and then – coming to the end of it and then seeing your wife, your little girls, you know, your mother, who you want to make proud, uh, having your sister take you in, you know, just, it was super emotional. And then, uh, you know, then the rest of the crew came as we got closer to the finish line. And then I just had started, uh, so I, I talk about pain cave, but I talk about partying in the pain cave. And like, to me, what that means is, is, is like in good times you can party and you have fun, but like even in bad times you can party in it. Cause you know, long as you move forward, you're going to get through it. So in either scenario, you're good. And so that's kind of what partying in the pain gave to me meant and taking that approach uh, to know that after four nights, five days, I was able to endure what I did, that I could walk down that last stretch with the music blazing in my headphones, bobbing my head, not having to DNF, freaking making it was super impactful, super touching, super emotional. Uh, And I got the job done and I was unbelievably proud of myself. To feel that achievement, that I finally got my knife sharp was unbelievable and one of the best feelings in the world. And, you know, now moving forward, it's like now my responsibility to never let the blade go dull. I have a mental 
strength I think very few have um, is the way I feel. And I'm unbelievably proud of that. And I sacrificed a lot of time from my family. And I wrote like a really uh, emotional post to my wife. And I even shared it on Instagram because hopefully it inspires people. But all of that time training, it's not for nothing. You know, it, it's for life. It's, it's to be stronger, better for them. Uh, as I keep saying, there's a connection between training for life and for this. So I was unbelievably proud to say that my time spent away from them in the pain cave was not for nothing. It was for being, to, to give my, I had to go through that to give my best to them. Mm-hmm. And, and I accomplished that. And now, like I said, it's my responsibility to not let the knife go dull and to keep that. And it was beautiful because I saw the look in their faces and conversations after that it was not for nothing. Like they know now there's a wolf, there's a savage, there's an animal, there's a beast that will love, support and protect them and will do endure anything for it. So that's why every time I keep talking about it, I get so emotional because it meant so freaking much to me. Oh man. It wasn't uh, just a race, man. It was, it was, it was beyond that for me. Well, you, like you said, you're training for life, right? And this yeah. is such a great example of how you turn this event into a, a, a life experience. It was a test. You know, it's, it's a test. And it says a lot about you and, and you know, how much of an inspiration, you know, you are to, you know, our running community here in San Diego and, <laughs> and those that, that follow you and stuff. And I, I really appreciate all the time, you know, today and, and breaking down you know, your experiences and, and sharing what the 240 really meant to, to you, you know, as a person. So, so yeah, Hector, thank you again for, for being a part of the trail life today. Yeah, I I appreciate it, man. And I, um, I truly appreciate, you know, um, the runs you put on the virtual events. Um, I've connected with so many people through those events, the, the, all of the, the trail running groups, they like our community, I feel so blessed. Like I, I wasn't, obviously I was in the race and I don't know what everybody else was doing for the runners, but San Diego is so special, man. Like I, I would be so hard to find another athlete getting a whole city to rally behind him or her. I think that what that's what makes, it makes me have so much gratitude and blessed to be from San Diego to see people rally behind somebody like that. And uh, as we kind of conclude this, like I, I promise I'm going to figure out ways to give back that love, to give back that gratitude, to give back more so than what people gave me. And I, I, I get emotional still thinking about it. So a big takeaway from me was feeling that and then making sure that I give it back. And so I'm going to figure out some ways to do that for some people, for you, uh, for the trail groups, uh, for the pack, for everybody that just did so much for me. Um, you can count on me coming up with some ways to give back and whether that might be I come and run and support you it might be coming to crew I might come volunteer for some of your races sport some gear I, I don't know I'm gonna figure some things out and I promise uh uh the pack in San Diego I'm gonna I'm gonna show love back the same way 10 times well you know as as a speaking on the behalf of the trail community here in San Diego you know we're, we love you man and and we're always gonna be there to support you so thank you again thank for, you. for being here with us so thank you Jeff
That'll do it for today's episode of the Trail Life Podcast. A special shout out to Hector Rodriguez for letting me jump into the pain cave with him today. I hope his stories and his experiences along the trails and the Moab 240 allow you to go out and search what you are capable of. Until then, I hope to see each and every one of you out on the trails real soon. This episode of the Trail Life Podcast is brought to you by Fleet Feet San Diego. At Fleet Feet, you will find a welcoming environment where runners, walkers, and fitness enthusiasts of all abilities receive unparalleled service and support. They empower you to pursue your goals and enjoy a lifetime of running. They are committed to helping you find the perfect fitting running shoe, sport bra, sock, insoles, or gear to do what you love. To find out a location near you, go to fleetfeetsandiego.com. Diego.com.